1: Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us again for Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Uh, My name is Sue Rocco, by the way. I often forget to um, (laughs) give my name. I'm so focused on my guests. Um, We are going to have a really... Tremendous show today, and and I'm I'm thrilled for two reasons. One, we have our in house financial contributor with us. She's sitting across the table from me, Jocelyn Ewart, um, principal, founding principal of um, Entrust Financial Incorporated. And we also have an incredibly inspirational guest um, on the line who's going to be joining us in a few minutes. And I wanted to mention if you're listening and you want to join in our conversation, um, please do. We'd love to hear from you, uh, you can call 888-329-3306, and please check out our website at womentowatch.net for all information regarding Women to Watch, our events, and who's in our lineup and coming on the show. Um, so we're going to start with Jocelyn, and uh, I I received a, your newsletter this week, and I'm always looking forward to it because I'm one of my goals for 2016 is to become more educated about financial matters. So I actually do look forward to your newsletter. And you you mentioned in it um, a topic that I think is not something that uh, I'll say women, but men as well probably don't think about often enough, and that's asset allocation. And I wanted you to talk about what that is and why it's important to to, um, focus on it, both for personal and professional reasons. That's a really great topic, especially
2: right now, Susan. As all of us probably know from the the very vociferous news media, uh, the market certainly got off to a rocky start so far in 2016. And for those of us who are long-term investors, our key is to have the proper asset allocation. Asset allocation is really the mix of your investments. It's really a recipe. For instance, I like to compare it to red gravy or spaghetti sauce, depending on how what name you like to give that particular delightful food that goes with your pasta. And in terms of red gravy, you're certainly going to have tomatoes, probably basil, probably salt. That's pretty basic. But you might want to jazz up your red gravy and add some other vegetables or some aromatic things like garlic, There's a lot of things you can do to jazz up your recipe for red gravy. Same with your asset allocation. Again, for long-term investors, you probably have some bonds, stocks, and cash in your portfolio. And how volatile your portfolio is or has been that you've seen in the last week has to do with the mix of these ingredients in your portfolio with your asset allocation.
1: I like the visual. <clears throat> As you know, I'm a very visual learner um, and a visual person, so I, I think that really is helpful in, in kind of seeing the big picture. And you mentioned the word volatile, you know, the volatile market. I think um, we wake up every day and we look at the news, and, you know, some mornings it seems like everything's going, you know, the wrong direction, and the next morning we wake up and things seem to be a little brighter. Um, how can we interpret the news and really understand what's happening? with the market with all of these ups and downs. Well, that's a really good question and that's a tough one because often the way to interpret is
2: interpret what we see on the news or read in the newspaper is to kind of stand back and take a deep breath. Most of what happens day to day is just noise. It doesn't really impact our long-term success. And to tie that back in with the asset allocation, the reason asset allocation is so important and it's good to remind yourself of its importance, especially during volatile times, is that over the long haul – what makes the most difference to our investment results is our mix in our asset allocation the ingredients in our asset allocation scientists researchers economists tried very hard in the 90s they repeated studies multiple times they were trying to find the magic bullet to investing results they were hoping it would be how you timed the purchase of your stocks they were hoping it would be that you had a great guru stock picker and none of the above proved to be true. More than 90% of the time, what earns us the performance that we're looking for as investors over the long haul is our mix of our asset allocation ingredients, stocks, bonds, and cash. So day-to-day, when we hear that noise, yes, you might want to pay a little attention, but I wouldn't get too uh, involved in what you hear. Uh, What's very interesting to me, certainly, as I counsel clients, is to look backwards to get a sense of what came before. That sometimes helps us get a sense of what's coming. And really, since 2012, even though there are always ups and downs, basically, we've been making money. And the overall trajectory continues to be upward at this time. So we're very optimistic. And uh, that doesn't mean that it's easy to see the minus signs. By now, many people have received their end-of-year statements. And for many of us, it's the first minus sign uh, for investors have seen, really, maybe since 2009. That's
1: a long time. So it does take a little bit of grit and fortitude. Would you say that you, when you talk about a mix of um – Uh, investments or, you know, having money in in different areas, if you're a small entrepreneur with a small business and you're someone um, that is risk averse, when you talk to them about having, um, having the mix, is it related to whether they are someone who is looking to take a risk in an investment or not? Is it that they should have a certain number of areas where they're putting their money um, and that doesn't, it's not more risky to have more areas, in other words. I'm not asking that very clearly. But <laughs> I think I know what you
2: mean. Okay. Um, using, going back to the red gravy metaphor, obviously you can have a very basic red gravy that's not going to be all jazzed up flavor wise. Same with your asset allocation. You can use the basic three components and you determine using those three components, how much volatility you're comfortable with when markets do what they've been doing since the beginning of this year. You know, if that gives you heart palpitations and you can't sleep at night because your account has some wide swings in it, that's going to impact how much of your asset allocation should be stocks, how much should be bonds. And certainly, very specifically to your point, we wouldn't be going far afield. For instance, we wouldn't be adding emerging markets asset class to the portfolio of somebody who's very conservative and doesn't like to see wide swings, because we could almost guarantee along the way that they would see higher highs, but lower lows. And it's the low lows that get us
1: upset. Yeah. So when you're sitting with a client Mm -hmm. and you're trying to determine on which side they are, um, what are some of the questions you ask them? That's a fantastic question, Susan. And the way I'm going to be very
2: general here, um, certainly a disclaimer, can't give any advice on the show. But what I really like to do is not just talk about if you have this mix of ingredients in your portfolio, you might drop 20 percent, which is what I often hear advisors say. 20 percent, most of us relate to that like, wow, you know, when I get a 20 percent discount, I'm really happy. No, when you get a 20% downturn in your portfolio and you had a million dollars, you're down $200,000. So what I try to do to help people after we've had the discussion of asset allocation of market volatility is, okay, X amount of money got invested, you're happy as a clam. The first thing that happened was it went up. But six months later, the market's in a downdraft draft, and now you're down $200,000. Is this something you've experienced before? Are you going to be able to sleep at night? That kind of thinking, no one is going to like it. No one likes minus signs. We all like the market to go straight up, but that's not realistic. So that's the way I would have that conversation, coupled with information and pictures, to go back to the visuals, of showing over time how the markets do tend to move in a positive direction But along the way, we have to put up
1: with some of the nonsense. Right. Can you um, leave the listeners with something positive, something (laughs) positive for them to think about this week um, as they go out and about and, you know, go to their jobs, run their their companies and their businesses, and, you know, just something that would, you know, leave them hopeful this week? Well, what I would do, if you haven't already done it, when you get the statement, I wouldn't
2: um, put a lot of attention on the minus sign, but I would make sure when you look at your statement, figure out what is your asset allocation? How much do you have in stocks compared to how much you have in bonds or how much you have in cash? Just that first step of really understanding, if you've had wide swings in your portfolio, gee, you'll probably be able to take those steps toward figuring out what created that impact of volatility in your portfolio. So awareness, you know, you
1: have uh, awareness. That's, is awareness key. is definitely the first step. It is. Yep. Um, we're going to um, bring our guest on now, and I know that you have to scoot out and get back to work. You're a busy lady. Um, thank you again for joining us this week. You always, you know, give insight in a nice, clear manner, which is what we hope to do each month. Well. I love to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jocelyn. Um we're going to turn to our guest this week now. Erica Wirth is joining us by phone. I am so incredibly excited to bring her um, onto the show today. Her story is truly inspirational, and I'm excited to share it. Erica is the president of Collective Intelligence, which is a premier uh background check and drug testing company. Um she's also currently developing uh an organization called Evepreneur, which we'll get into later in the show. Welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. It's great to, great to hear your voice. Um, we're going to start, as we always do, at the very beginning of your life story <laughs> because it's such a big piece of who you are and mm-hmm. um, and what you're doing. And I wanted you to just take a couple of minutes to talk about your childhood and some of the difficulties and challenges that you faced as a young girl.
0: Sure. Well, I was raised um, in Washington, D.C. to a single mother. I never knew my father. Um, I didn't even have his name on my birth certificate. And my mom was a single working mom. And this is before the days of divorces and latchkey kids and things like that. Um, I call myself one of the original latchkey kids. But what I remember distinctly about my childhood is how difficult it was for my mother, how completely alone she was. And she worked as a legal secretary, and she worked... hours a day. She worked at least five days a week and I remember her coming home and crying and just how tight money was. And I always knew how important it was. Money was very, very important and how hard it was to watch her struggle. And I remember distinctly being a little child and saying, I don't ever want to live like that. I don't want to be a slave to a job. And I appreciate it. I come from a long line of hardworking people. My grandfather worked on the assembly line for Chrysler. Actually, all my family did, or they were farmers. They really built and worked the land. But there was this enslavement and the disrespect that she received at work and just the sacrifices that she made. And And I remember hustling when I was a little girl. I would draw pictures and spell them. And I was I kind of feel like I was born an entrepreneur. And I would um, I would go around and, and scrape up, rake up leaves in the fall and scrape up driveways in the winter and, and do lemonade stands and car washes. And I was making 100 bucks a month when I was 10 years old. And I would save the money. And once in a while, Mom would come to me and she would go, can I borrow $20? And I would say, well, when are you going to pay it back and how much is it, you know? So I remember just <laughs> that, the that struggle. Of, <laughs> yes, I was called Bank of Bank of Erica. So, yeah, that was an <laughs> old nickname I had as a child. But I remember just wanting freedom was very important to me and not being confined. Um, those were very distinct memories I have as a child.
1: Mm. Did you Erica, did you have siblings growing up? I didn't.
0: Mm-mm. You didn't? So you and my mom's a- only child. Yeah. I, I subsequently met my father later in life and found out I have quite a few siblings, um, and I know four of them, and we're developing a relationship. And my father actually passed away a couple of years ago, but it's weird because I grew up an only child, but I have this extended family now, so mm. it's an interesting, interesting experience.
1: Yeah. What, can you talk about the reason your dad was missing in your life? Uh, my dad was
0: also an entrepreneur, and it's funny. I never I saw him all of nine days my entire life, but genetically, I'm the most like him of all the kids. Um, he was an entrepreneur. He was a world traveler. He um, he was basically a free spirit, and he also was really charming with the ladies. And so he. He just had certain beliefs about having children, and he had quite a few of them, uh, many of whom I don't know that I'll ever meet because we all um, – like I carry my mother's name like a son, and a lot of them were girls. But he married 50 years uh, to this wonderful woman, my stepmother, and they had four children. So there's four legitimate children and two from a first marriage, and then there's just uh, quite a few more like me that are just sort of floating around. Yeah. Um, but so I met him when I was 24, and I remember – wanting him to be responsible for my childhood and all the things I felt I didn't have and the things I felt I missed out on. And once I met him, um, I took all my expectations to meet him and all that little girl hope and all of that stuff. And, and it was very disappointing and he was very disappointing and, and we had very opposite views of things and and disagreed greatly. And I didn't see him for another 18 years. And when I got to see him again, I got to understand that I had a perfect childhood and a couple of years after I reconnected with him when he passed away, I thanked him for being exactly the father I needed. His absence taught me to be independent. His abandonment taught me loyalty. There's all sorts of things that we can we can learn from from adversity, but it's so easy to get caught into the grief or the pain or the loss or the fear. And when you can see past that and you can just keep going and just put one foot in front of the other, there's always a lesson on the other side. Mm-hmm. There's always a benefit. And I got so many gifts from my father not being around that I'm actually really grateful now as an adult looking back. I had the perfect childhood. Oh. I had everything I
1: needed. Yeah. Not
0: everything I wanted, but everything I needed. And what a wonderful way to look at that
1: experience. I think that's a big part of your story, your your ability to take each and every challenge that you faced as um, a, a moment to, to learn a lesson.
0: Yeah, I, well, I'm Irish, as we discussed before. Yeah. I think I, my personal philosophy is: you have two choices. You can lay down and die, or you can get up and keep going. But life is going to still be in session. So, what are you going to do? Right. You know, we have these pictures, especially as women. I think um, I'm writing a book right now. I'm actually writing a couple of books, but uh, one is a business memoir talking about when I started my company, Collective Intelligence, and I didn't know any other female business owners, and I had all of this history and had made all of these mistakes, but I had this ambition and this desire to be free and to work for myself. And, um, and as a woman, I had this ideal picture of what things were supposed to look like. And, you know, we're raised with, we're supposed to look perfect and be the perfect size and have the perfect bank account and always be perfect. As a business owner, you got to get messy. (laughs) You have to let yourself fail and make mistakes and admit when you're wrong, uh, which I've been wrong many times as my staff will Gladly tell anyone.
1: Right, and we will continue <laughs> to be wrong.
0: <laughs> absolutely, right. and so it's. I think part of success, too, is, is you know, you have this picture It was supposed to be a, a blue sky and a yellow sun and a green tree and it's a pink tree and a purple sky and it's <laughs> a moon and no sun and we get so caught up in the way things we want them to be and the reality is things change. Economic stuff changes. Clients change. Vendors make mistakes. Things happen. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do? If you're so stoic and stuck in your idea of being right, you're going to miss the journey yeah. in my opinion.
1: Well, one of the, you know, again, you, one of the things it's so fascinating to me is how you came to this awareness and and really kind of an enlightenment um, from what I can see having had um, these challenges and one of the things I read in your bio you said I didn't feel I deserved to be happy and this was mm-hmm. at a time when you were in high school you certainly had you know the intellect to be successful later in life you were straight A student you know an mm-hmm. honor student but um, you became an alcoholic and a drug Addict in high school. Let's talk about that time because that was when you were having these thoughts of of not being worthy and um, not feeling that you deserved happiness and yet you overcame it. What happened? Yeah. I
0: remember that distinctly. Um, I actually got sober my senior year of high school. They put me in a in a lockdown facility two days before Christmas on Christmas break. And prior to that, um, I believe alcoholism is genetic. I think it's just something I'm Irish, English and Scottish, so pretty sure I came out like that. And there's various forms of addiction in every side of my family, so I I remember being very, what I call diseased, where I just wasn't comfortable in my skin. And then I didn't have a father. And there was, uh, there was some, um, there were some sexual things that happened as a child that were confusing and that were traumatizing. And I didn't have an outlet to understand what to do with those things. And so I let them define me. And, you know, I have a saying that what you believe, what you perceive is what you believe. And so if I think that you're mad at me, then I'm going to make a whole bunch of decisions based on my belief that you are absolutely mad at me and it could be that you're just busy or distracted or going through your own things but my father not being there created the belief in me that I wasn't lovable Um, these different things happening to me created the belief in me that I was damaged and broken and so I made decisions based on that belief and I didn't have any faith and I didn't have anything so alcohol was a huge solution for me for a long time Mm -hmm. until it stopped working and I was I was a straight honor student by day, private Catholic high school, the whole thing. And by night, I was you know I had um, I had some nice boyfriends, but I would usually sabotage those relationships, and I would gravitate to the men that were physically and emotionally abusive, um, and it reinforced. Uh, You know, I was such a victim back then, and now I look at these things, and I'm writing this memoir, and I was reinforcing my own beliefs about myself. I chose people that could remind me over and over again how unlovable I was or how broken or how damaged. So um, it really was this, this desperate time, and I think probably I'm still friends with quite a few people from high school on Facebook and social media, and I think they would be shocked because I think the persona that I had by day and what was going on inside were very incongruous. But I also believe that that's how we know who we are. And if I hadn't have gone through that, I wouldn't have been forced to look at myself and and become sober, which started me on a whole other journey of forgiveness of myself, of my parents of all the things that disappointed me in life and you know there's a process through 12 steps and through just spiritual seeking in general that i apply to my business as well and to anything i do in life um i just don't think that it has to define us and i think that that's what we don't know what we're made of until we're faced with some choices. It's easy to have faith when everything you want is being handed to you. Rip some of those things away, some of those things that define who we think we are, and we're floundering, right? <laughs> Wait a minute. How was I, you know, I had such a perfect plan. How did this fail? Well, sometimes you have to get your behind handed to you, I think, to understand the importance, to understand how um, gratitude. I'm incredibly grateful for my life because I've almost lost it. I'm incredibly grateful for my successes because I've had huge failures. So I really think it's about perception. And I think that we can look for the other shoe to drop and we can be miserable and we can be depressed. And that's a choice that we can make. We can choose to be afraid or we can choose to live greatly. And that's what I, there's so many incredible, inspiring people around. And I really. Those are the people I surround myself with. Those are the books that I read. Those are—that's the kind of woman I want to be. That's the kind of legacy I want to leave behind when I go. Not pain, but joy and forgiveness and hope and courage. And there's so much great stuff if we choose to see it.
1: Yeah, choice is, is so key. Uh, you know, I'm so happy to, to say that you've been sober 28 years. So ever since high school, yeah. and that's a that's a huge accomplishment. It's a very very difficult <laughs> thing to overcome addiction. So I have to ask, what do you think was the the key to your success in that? Uh, well, I
0: take very little credit for that um, because left to my own devices, I'm pretty self-destructive. That's the, the nature. That's that's my inherent nature um, is, you know, you give me a perfect situation and I'll bring some C4 to the party and detonate it at the most inopportune time and just blow up every opportunity. And so what I really had to do was adopt um, not only the 12 steps but really some not religious principles for me but spiritual principles of what am I doing here and what am I responsible for and really truly taking responsibility for my actions and my life. There's a process that we go through with 12 step work where we get to clear away sort of whatever's holding us back and a lot of people don't do the work, they just sort of stop drinking and, and exist and it's very uncomfortable and I've done that as well I really wanted to avoid the work But when you do the work, there's this profound change that happens. When you see your parents as being just human and that they did the best that they absolutely could, you're able to understand that they weren't here to hurt you. (laughs) They didn't give birth to you with the intention of harming you. Uh, When you see the people that have hurt you or broken your heart and you look at the people whose heart you've broken, you take responsibility for that and you understand that it's all part of that process of growing and learning and I just am incredibly grateful. I have a lot of people around me that have loved me when I couldn't love myself, that have believed in me and inspired me and pushed me and challenged me. One of my greatest allies was um, one of my best friends ever. His name was Al, and he was also someone I was madly in love with, and he pushed me. I was a waitress, and here I was, this straight honor student with this ridiculous IQ, and I was waiting tables, and he said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You could be doing so much more. Yeah. And the safe answer was, is I was, I'm going to be an actress and I'm just, you know, doing what LA girls do. <laughs> and I'm just being an actress. But the reality is, is I would get auditions and I wouldn't show up for them. I would get casting directors that wanted me to come in and I would never respond. And I sabotaged this, all these opportunities I had. And he really pushed me and he didn't let me feel sorry for myself. And he actually passed away, um, I had the good fortune of having him in my life for eight years, and he passed away 12 years ago, and it profoundly changed the way that I live my life and the way I run my business. Losing him was the most painful thing ever, but it also taught me the importance of each moment and how important it is to say what you need to say and to be present with your loved ones. Uh, there's so many opportunities that I wasted because I put it off because of time, money, or fear. And after I went through the grief of losing him, I really created this whole new program for myself um, that I didn't read anywhere, but I just realized how many things I had always said no to. And so I made a list of things I had put off because of time, money, or fear, and once a month I would do these things. And it changed my life, and it changed my business uh, within Within two years, I was a millionaire. Uh, it just really was me taking the brakes off. So that's been a big part of the journey, too, Was not just the positive things and the positive teachers, but, you know, sort of getting my teeth kicked in <laughs> and having everything that that defined me being removed. And... Being left with just me and my faith, and moving forward one step at a time. Yeah. So it's it's definitely been a journey. Twenty eight days, twenty eight years does not happen overnight.
1: No, <laughs> no, know? it doesn't. And and you know, um, so much a part of your journey has been these ups and downs. But I think at the I think at the mm-hmm. core is this strength that you have um, to remind yourself to to look at the positive because often you know these kinds of experiences break people down. Um, but it seems to me there was something innately in you that you wanted uh, to make a difference. You wanted to be the best version of yourself that you could be.
0: Mm-hmm. I only have one fear in life, and that is being 85 years old and looking back and thinking, what if? Yeah. Right. What if I had done that? What if I had said that? And I've had the good fortune of losing people that I love more than anything. Um, You know, when I got sober, it was the 80s, and we lost an entire generation of beautiful people to AIDS. Uh, And lots of my friends have um, not, they're no longer here. And so I do have this thing where, A, I'm living for the people that aren't here. So I get to live the life. You know, I had a darling, darling friend of mine that was a roommate with us when I was a, a little girl. And he just was such a light. And he died when he was 41 years old of AIDS. And I talked to him before he died, and I just said, gosh, Baba, I wish we could go back and live in D.C. and do theater again, and just like the old days. And his tongue was swollen from medication, and he had lesions all over his body, and he was probably about 80 pounds at that time. And he said, you can't ever go back. You have to keep moving forward. And he said, no matter what you do, you grab life by the, mm -hmm, and you don't ever let it go because you've still got it. And I've never forgotten that. So it's hard to see things like that. And to not be affected and to not have that somehow become the fabric of who you are. And also being of service. You know, I, when I got sober, I felt so useless. I felt like such a used up piece of nothing. And I truly felt that in my heart of hearts. If you'd asked me that, I mean, I, I had no value. And what, um, what I learned through recovery is to always turn and help someone else, especially when things are really challenging and difficult to turn and help someone else. And, you know, my company is 15 years old now. We've weathered some storms. We go up and down the, you know, there's 270,000 new jobs in the U.S. Background checks are great right now, but I really have a sense now of wanting to give back to other female business owners and wanting to help them. You know, what's the point of me having this success if I can't turn around and share that with others, especially the fact that, When I started, there weren't a lot of resources for women business owners, and I didn't know any other
1: female entrepreneurs, so I just had no idea what I was doing. Right. You figured it it out. You figured it out on your own, but you're right. There wasn't that support there that there is today mm -hmm. for sure.
0: Yeah, and out of the 500 fastest-growing companies in 2015, 14% of them are run by women. That's up from 10 years before, up from 8%. So I don't think that there's this contingent of people that are going to stop and help women start businesses unless women do it. I really right. think it's our responsibility. I agree. But that's also the thing. If you can take your 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 kicks and your knocks and you can turn those into inspiration to someone else, then it's all worth it. Yeah. Every bit of it's worth it. I've been able to work with so many women because of my childhood and because of where I come from. That's a gift. I'm so grateful for that opportunity. So any chance that I can be useful, that's what keeps me moving forward. That's where I get my strength from is when you can touch the, the heart, mind or soul of another human and give them the belief to just keep going for one more second That's a gift. And that's an incredible thing. And if you're thinking about your pain and you're sitting at home alone licking your wounds, you're missing it.
1: Yeah. You know what? Well, then there you you go. That is the key, right? The key is to um, make sure you're helping others. That lifts you up. That lifts you up and takes your focus off of what's happening to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about how you, can, you know, so at 28 years old, you know, you've been through quite a lot um, for a yeah. young woman. At 28 years old, you decided to become a detective, <laughs> which I think <laughs> is so cool. Um, it, yeah. You know, um, I when I see the word detective, I often think of my daughter because she, she always had an interest in that. If she wasn't a photographer, she would be a de- a detective, and um, mm-hmm. it was a culmination of all your favorite things. You said, you know, psychology, yes. law, um, acting, writing, photography, um, which I think is is so cool that you were able to kind of bring all of those interests, and it led to one career for you. Um, yes. Talk about. I want to know what what does it take to be a detective. So you're 28, and you said, <laughs> you know, I think this would be a really cool job. What do you do to to go make that happen?
0: It was such a, it was such a, what I call a God shot or a universe shot. Um, I was, I was waiting tables and then I was working production actually at that point And I was working for a man who was not kind, who called me very, very bad names every day. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't i can't do this what am i doing i'm getting a good paycheck but again i'm like selling my soul for money and i can't do this so i went on a road trip i went on unemployment the one and only time i've ever been i go on this huge trip and i stop in colorado to see my sisters and they said what are you going to do when you get back and i said well the only other thing i've ever wanted to do is be a detective and there's this academy but it's five thousand dollars and at the time you might have asked me for five hundred thousand i didn't have five thousand dollars and uh and i was supposed to stay there a week we got into a really bad car accident the first night I was there and everyone was stressed so I came home a week early I'd been gone 30 days there was a stack of mail and the very top piece of mail was a letter from unemployment saying they would pay for me to go to that detective academy and that I got back on a Sunday that Monday was the last day to register Tuesday was the last day to start class I was the last student ever accepted into the program they stopped the program it was just one of those weird things where it was exactly where I needed to be. Yeah. Um, other than that, I don't know what I would have done, but that was where I went, and it was a 12-week course. Within eight weeks, the instructors were hiring me. Within six months, I went from making $10 an hour to making $50 an hour. Then wow. I started working at the academy and teaching. I started going in and training people on how to do surveillance and write reports. I just was a natural at it. And did you I love always the say, work and I've at hired, the time? Did, were you loving your, your oh, yeah. job then? I've yeah. done thousands of hours. <laughs> Of investigations. And I'm actually a trained uh, kinesic interviewer, so I get confessions from people, which is always fun. Wow. And I do handwriting analysis. But I have trained many, many new detectives, and the number one uh, thing is common sense. I mean, it, it's not something that you need book smarts for, but you need to have common sense, and you need to have a steady hand with a camera, and you need to be able to write a detailed report. If do you can do those things, you can be a detective. Do you need to be able to read people? I personally do, for especially for kinesic interviewing, absolutely, mm-hmm. um, but I've always been really intuitive, and I was a waitress, so I was used to talking to people. I was an actress, so I was used to – like one time I was out doing surveillance, and normally you get in the back seat so that nobody sees you, but if you're following somebody in the middle of the day and you pull up in front of a house and they're parked a block away, you have to sort of sit in your front seat and wait. Someone would come out, excuse me, why are you in my neighborhood? And I would burst into tears and say, oh, my boyfriend just broke up with me. And so now I'm, (laughs) you know, or oh, I have morning sickness and I just I just needed to pull over. And you need to be very spontaneous and you need to be able to. You know, acting chops definitely helped. Yeah. And I was able to serve very difficult process serves on attorneys and celebrities that nobody could get close to. And I would, you know, finagle my way in and um, lots of lots of fun
1: stories. Yeah. Well, there's there's lots of fun stories. And one of them, which is my favorite, is, is in uh, June of 2001, you're sitting in a cafe. And mm-hmm. um, for some reason, I'm sure you were thinking about how can I, you know, do what I'm doing, but do it for myself. And the and the term collective intelligence popped into your head, and and you thought mm-hmm. that's a great name for detective agency. What, yeah. what do you think? But
0: I was in the process of going through LAPD because I had decided I'd been a detective for three years. I'd worked for several agencies. I'd worked for uh, the, the West Coast Detective Academy, and then I got to the point where I wanted to do homicide, but LAPD was going through a huge Rampart scandal at the time. So it was going to take eight years to make detectives. So I was going through the physical testing and all of the, you have to go through this polygraph, you have to do all these things to be accepted. And I'm sitting in the Lulu's Beehive on Ventura Boulevard, and I hear collective intelligence, and I just think, well, if I ever did that. You know, but it's again it's one of those things, if I ever did that, how many times do we ask ourselves that? That's that'd be a great idea if I ever did anything with it. And it stuck with me like glue. It just stuck to me and I thought, I'm gonna do it. And I had no evidence (laughs) pointing to the fact that I could. Right. And I I remember my expenses at the time were about two thousand dollars a month. I had a twelve thousand dollar limit on a credit card that was I, I had all the balance on there. And so I went Monday and got the name and started the company, and I told everyone, I'm going to start. I'm starting this business. And they went, mm-hmm, sure you are, <laughs> and laughed at me because, you know, here I am, Miss Detective, Miss Whatever. And I said, no, I'm doing it. And they went,
1: mm-hmm, how are you? well, yeah. good luck with that. Yeah, how were you able to kind of scoff off their skepticism?
0: I was hungry. I ate on a dollar a day. That was my food budget. McDonald's, uh, this is so disgusting now because I I never eat fast food, but I um, ate on a dollar a day. I couldn't afford to turn my heat on, and I just did nothing but focus on work. And so I just kept hounding people and calling. And this one woman said, well, maybe we could use you, but call us in a few weeks. So I called her every single day. And after (laughs) the first week, she said, okay, okay, can you do these types of searches? And I had never even heard of those searches, but I said, yeah, I can do them. And she said, what do you charge? And I said, six bucks. And she (laughs) said, okay. Within one week of handling that those searches, she gave me the entire state of California. Wow. Because she said, you have a great work ethic. And. So I just kept going from there and then three months later 9-11 happened and suddenly I'm in an industry that is exploding. Mm, Right. And I just rode the wave. Yeah. And we, I went from being me to having nine employees within a year.
1: Wow. Um if you're just tuning in, I just want to quickly mention we are joined today by Erica Worth, who is the president of Collective Intelligence Incorporated, um, a background check and drug testing company. Um what you know you mentioned earlier in um about how being an actress or learning how to act is an important piece of any kind of detective work. And um you had mentioned to me about the fact that when you were answering the phones when you first started your business, you would <laughs> speak and Different accents so that the people yes. calling thought you had multiple employees. I love that. Uh-huh.
0: I had dial up, AOL 2.0 dial up. I had one phone line, so if I was on the internet and someone called, it would disconnect the internet. And then I would answer in different accents, and each accent had a different name, so it sounded like I had multiple staff. And uh, I didn't even have a hold button, so I would disconnect the cord from the handset. <laughs> and then i would come back and go this is erica and that's and i had a neighbor bless her heart Jody she was a stay at home mom and she would take her her daughter to daycare or to school and then she would come home or come over to my house and she would work for me 4 days every 4 hours a day every day for free she yeah. just believed in me and some yeah. days we did nothing some days we danced around my living room right. some days we watched the reports on 911 but she was just my number one cheerleader yeah. and thank god for Jody if you're out there listening
1: oh uh, yeah so, are you still yeah. in touch with her cuz sometimes that's all it takes is one person who who mm-hmm. has your back you know and believes in you
0: I do. I still see her on occasion. Um, she's in L- L.A. and I'm in Vancouver, Washington, so I don't get to see people as much. But, of course, thank you, Facebook. There's <laughs> there's the way to stay connected
1: that way. So. Yeah. Tell me how – so, you know, eventually you you started to build a team, and, and I think it was a very mm-hmm. short period of time. You said in 18 months you had five employees. That's not yeah. really a, a long time when you're starting your own business and company. How did you um, – come to know how to to run the business part of what you were doing. You know a lot of it oh, was intuitive so and but where did you mm-hmm. you know learn how to, to run the company?
0: Well I I used So there's 12 steps, and there's also 12 traditions. And the 12 traditions are pretty cool, and and it basically keeps 12-step groups in line because you have all these different personalities. And the first tradition is our common welfare should come first. So I applied that. Um, They say to apply the steps to yourself and the traditions to your business and your relationships. And so what it did was it made me, um, at first I thought, okay, I'm going to be really sweet. I'm going to hire a bunch of friends, and they would sort of play solitaire or talk on the phone, and then I would take all the work back, and I was doing all the work. So then I hired some strangers, and I wanted to be firm, and I wanted them to know that I was the boss, and so I was sort of psycho, I think, and really (laughs) trying to let them know they had to respect me, and that backfired and did not go well, and then I decided to apply the traditions, and I ran it as a group, so when we hire someone, they interview with everyone. It's not just me. Because you can be sweet to me. You want me to give you a job. But if you're mean to my assistants or all of the other people that work for the company, uh, it's a group decision. We all work together. I listen to their ideas. Um, we've had to change our industry. You know, as, as when the economy collapsed, our industry died. And so we had to be really creative about how we were going to find background checks in a country that wasn't hiring. So it's really one of those things where we really, um, I'm the chief, I'm the, the boss, and I have to make the ultimate decisions, but I really do try to incorporate everyone's ideas uh, and everyone's cross-trained, and it really is um, not a very corporate environment, but it's one where everyone's thrived. So it's its worked really well, but I made a lot of mistakes, tons of mistakes. And it's hard when you make mistakes as the boss because all of your staff see it. And I was scared every day because I was being faced with my own that you know belief system of what i was worth there's nothing like starting a business to really challenge you <laughs> right yes. in a whole different way yes. and all of your fears and all of your your internal secrets that you have about what you're worth they come out and then you make a mistake and then it's you have to make it right
1: yeah well, you know I'm and not- you
0: have to Admit when you're wrong.
1: Yeah, and not only that, you're you're competing, right? With other, as you mentioned, you know, after 9/11, the this industry kind of exploded, and um, small businesses to large corporations were were realizing the importance of doing this, you know, and hiring someone to do this service. So now you're competing with perhaps you know larger companies that have um, some type of history Huge behind company. the name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it that that um, allowed you to do that with the confidence? Um, when you were such a small business? Well, I, I have a couple of things I act
0: as if. So even when I'm terrified, I just act as if I'm not. Um, but I also can't <laughs> fake get it caught till up you in the it, numbers.
1: Right?
0: Yeah, yeah, fake it till you make it. Right. Um, they, you know, I'm. some of my competitors are doing a, a half a billion dollars a year on the New York Stock Exchange. That's lovely for them, and they've got FBI contracts and everything else. I brought to – I knew that I could do the work, and I knew that I believed in, in – the work. I didn't necessarily believe in me as much as I pretended to, but I knew that I knew what I was doing, <laughs> Excuse me. and I knew we could do background checks. So it was one of those things where um, I have to not be concerned about what everyone else is doing and just do what's right for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The same thing when I'm writing a book. I can't write for a reader, or I can't write... And, and not put that because I'm afraid of what you're going to say. I just have to be true to what I know how to do. And so I brought my good, old-fashioned, hardworking East Coast values with me. And so that's what I, you know, we re- rewrote our mission statement and we came, with what came up with our core values. And this is how we approach our clients. So we may not be the biggest, but we take care of our clients. We pay attention to them. When I want a new client, I bake them cookies. And I write them a handwritten note, and I send these hand-baked cookies off to these huge CEOs, and I say, hey, I'd love to talk to you about how to help you with your background screening. You know, not something that would normally be taught in corporate America, but I'm not, I didn't come from corporate America. I came from me in yeah. my life and my experience, and I want to connect with people. I just don't want a client to give me a lot of money for a month. I want to be your vendor for 10 years. I want you to be so happy with our services that you refer us out. So I really pay attention to the day-to-day, how can we be our best? And some days we do better than others. Um, But that's really what we bring to it is that connection. How many times do we call into companies now and you can't even get a person? Yeah. And you get treated like cattle.
1: Yes. Yes. So you focus on the relationships. You know, you're you're so much more focused on the relationships um, than than the service. I mean, they're equally as important. Maybe the relationships are even more important because that's what's going to sustain you as a company.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, any, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of companies that do what I do. Right. And they're great at it, too. But we do connect on a personal level. And I, and I talk to my clients, and I know their families and their children and their pets. And, you know, I try to connect with them, um, even though it's, that's, I would say, the most challenging thing, because everyone's so busy. And we're all in different time zones and right. all of that. But I think, for me, that has been our success. People don't trust us with background checks because of a website or a commercial. They trust us because they trust me. That's right. That's they believe right. me. And if I'm not as good as my words, then my company is going to fail.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the best so. advice. Um, let's talk about your interest in supporting women in business and this oh, organization. About I know you I know <laughs> we could together. We could. Um, so you decided to create. Um, I guess I, I don't know whether to call it an organization or a foundation, but Evepreneur. Talk about mm-hmm. why you you decided to do that and what exactly it's going to be. Again, it just came to me. Um, I'm
0: actually. I'm finishing up EricaWorth.com, and that's going to be the main platform for business and life coaching um, and motivating in general. Uh, I call myself a motivator. That's one of my, my life titles. Um, So I really want to take all of this experience and all the mistakes and all the lessons and pass this along to anyone that might need it. And I think it changes too. your first year. You're just trying to figure out how to get the basics. You need a good foundation. You need a brand. um, You need to figure out the legal things and insurance and all that stuff. Two to five years, you're dealing with personalities and employees and managing and delegating. Five to ten, now you're in a long-term relationship, and maybe the spark has died for you. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're overworked. Maybe you're out of balance with your family or your friends or your children. Things like that. So I really wanted, um, I've been in 15 years now, so I really want to give back some of that. And Eve is about creating um, a place for women to come where there's uh, women directories for business where we can go to each other and give each other references and give each other business, online mentorship, um, where we have resources. If you're new in business, you can, you'll have resources. And if you've been around for a while and you need to talk to someone, we'll have mentorship and other resources and, you know, conferences and spotlight women-owned businesses and really giving attention to the everyday heroes. How many negative things do we hear every day? The economy is crazy. The presidential race is crazy. All these things are happening. There's still so much hope and so much courage and so much heart in America. And that's really, I'd like to focus on the positive and stay out of the the drama
1: Yeah, (laughs) I I, I do in most of my life. Yeah, I love to hear that because we do when it, um, you know, when it comes to women and careers and uh, the economy, we see a lot of statistics out there about how far we still have to go. And I so much prefer to focus on how far we have come and, and what women like you are doing out there that's going to make such a big difference. But I also want to encourage
0: women, too, that I'm just like every other woman. Yeah, I am. Ju- I mean, we're all so similar and it's so easy for us to judge our insides by other people's outsides and do that comparison game. Mm-hmm. We all have something to contribute, even if it's just a kind word or a client reference or something. There is enough. There is enough work, there is enough success, there is enough of everything that we need. But we have to be, I believe, that we have to be giving with it. We have to be, um, try to be selfless. You know, I'm selfish when I have to make decisions and I have to do certain things. You know, I have to be selfish to be a business owner to a certain extent. Um, I have to take time for myself. I have to delegate. I have to do those things. But in order to help other people, I think that there's so much opportunity, even in small ways, to be of service. And those little ways add up very very quickly and i think that yeah i think women could revolutionize a lot of things if they banded together absolutely stopped talking about each other and all of it we get so caught up in these little things and we're magnificent that's amazing
1: that's right i need you on the show every week (laughs) (laughs) done (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um no i agree and 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 uh i think what happens some often is um, competitiveness kind of, you know, works its way in rather than uh, the focus being on um, collaborating and, you know, what can we do mm-hmm. that's going to be moving us all forward rather than um, the competitive nature. I read something just this, or I guess it was last week on on LinkedIn. I follow quite a number of people who I find, you know, put some great stuff out there. And um, there was an article about... Um, Rather than ranking, there's a lot of, you know, there's all kinds of um, publications and online sites that rank the most powerful women. Um, We kind of need to do away with that and just put everybody on an equal footing and say, look what they're all doing. Mm -hmm. Look what we're all doing. Um, There is no number one, best, most powerful person, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially with women. I mean, don't we have enough of that? from the media and from the time we're handed a Barbie and from, you know what I mean? Like there's enough of that. Yeah, there is. I don't believe in competition between women. And I think I get it. I get that it comes from fear that that's someone right. else is going Human to get something nature. that we need. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's the thing is once we grow up, aren't we responsible for that? Yeah. Aren't we responsible for, isn't it my personal responsibility to not make choices out of fear to the best of my ability? And it's not really, I try very hard to deal with me and be responsible for me mm-hmm. and not um, again, I try not to look at the negative. I'm very careful about what I listen to. I'm very careful to the messages that I receive mm-hmm. because I don't want to hear someone else's fear. I have enough of my own. yeah I really don't need anyone else, and I think that there's enough. and I think that I just I think society has torn down women historically for so many years. What are we doing? Why are we perpetuating the roles that were handed to us? Why don't we do something better? We're great. We're the bringers of life. We can do anything. A woman is a force to be reckoned with, and any man will tell you that. Right. And I love men. This isn't anti-man, but there is something magnificent and wonderful and special and unique about being a woman. Yeah. So why don't we just embrace that Absolutely. and then help other women? I love that. Nelson Mandela said, and Marianne Williamson might have written this, but we can't stay small enough. To make we can't stay sick enough to make one man well and we can't stay low enough or poor enough to make one person rich that we rise above all of those things and by doing so we bring everyone up with us mm. i that's the philosophy I like to I like to go with that
1: I, and I, I, choose I do that. as well for there you go I choose that also um, Erica listen yeah. we 're going to take a very quick break and, and when we come back, I want to hear what your goals are for your company uh, in 2016 okay. we will be right back. Great.
2: there are 365 days to schedule a mammogram today is as good as any holy redeemer breast care makes it easy we offer the latest technology like 3d mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue plus our same day readings mean same day peace of mind Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at
1: holyredeemer.com
2: slash mammogram.
1: Two three 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 one seven seven. That's msjacad.org or 215 Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Uh, my guest this afternoon is a very successful and inspirational woman who I'm thrilled to have uh, sharing her story with us today. She is the president of Collective Intelligence Incorporated, which is a background check and drug testing company. And she's also looking to start um, a new organization called Evepreneur that will be a wonderful. Wonderful resource um, and support system for professional women, and I would say for for personal development as well. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, right?
1: yeah, I think it's al- it's always the
0: tagline is for for the empowerment of women in any way, in whether. Any- it, it, any kind of resource that I can find that can help empower women, I want to share.
1: Yeah. Let me Anything ask you, uh, I have
0: to teach, I want to give away.
1: Yeah. I think um, – let me ask you this. What do you think the key difference would be with your organization from, from other um, platforms that are out there? Because there are – as we know, there's an abundance of networking groups, um, online sites. There's lots of different things going on to um, empower women today. What would you say is the, the key to how you, yours will be different?
0: Well, the funny thing is, is I am notorious for staying away from competitors because I don't like to be influenced. So I know that they're out there and I get little blurbs here and there that people tell me, oh, about this thing or this thing. But I don't look at what anyone else is doing because I want it to be mine. I want it to be from me and not from fear or comparison or trying to keep up with someone with a different experience. Yeah. I only have my experience and that's what I can bring to the table. And I have a ton of women that I have worked with and I know that I would like to spotlight. I would like to give people opportunities to tell their stories. I'm publishing a few books. I would like to give people opportunities to publish their own books. So I'm developing a publishing uh, part of Evepreneur as well. Mm-hmm. So I for me, I think there doesn't have to be one. That's but true. this is me and my story. And and if you know me and if you spend time with me, you know that it's an experience. Uh, and the women that come to me for coaching and women that come to me for advice are coming t- for me to talk to them, to give them whatever my take on this stuff is. So that's what Eve Pernor is. is. It's really just my vision and my dream, and it might look different from someone else's. But, again, I don't think we can have too much good stuff. Yeah, you know, I-, I, think I think that's that one there's.
1: The- I'm sorry. I just, I just think that's one of the best answers, um, Erica, because I think one of the things that holds people back, and women in particular, is constantly looking to see what everyone else is doing. And then it, it makes you lose focus on what feels authentic to you. You know,
0: y- there's a great analogy. You've got three trees standing along the side of the road and none of them are comparing themselves to each other. One may have yellow leaves. One may have no leaves. One may have pink flowers. They're each uniquely beautiful and they're each uniquely
1: themselves. And they're not trying to be the other tree or the bush. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and that's not, and not just, you have to be knowledgeable about um, you know, and educate yourself and be knowledgeable about what's going on. It's also good to get advice, but at the end of the day, you have to be you. You're mm-hmm. right? You have to be you in the work yeah. that you're doing.
0: And that's what I do when I meet with women. I mean, I I can read a woman in five seconds. I just, that's the women that come to me. They're in these places where they're stuck and it's so easy to help other people. It's so easy to see stuff in other people. It's so much harder to see it in ourselves. And even the best and the brightest and the most talented, they get confused. It's sort of like your boat sinks and you're sitting in the water with a life vest on and the shore is over there, but it's kind of far away. And you're just sort of treading water trying to figure out what to do next. Sometimes you just need someone to help you Mm -hmm. throw out a little life raft or come up with a tugboat or stand as your cheerleader on the shore going, you can do it. That's right. That's right. So that's what Eve for is all about. And I, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life. I have an amazing partner and I have a wonderful life and I get to travel. I get to do lots of things. None of it fills me up the way helping women does. Mm -hmm. And I hope I get to do this the rest of my life in as many different ways. If I won that $1.3 billion Powerball, I'm starting foundation and microloans for women. I just, I just wanted, I want to see what women can do. I just (laughs) want to see if we set all the women on fire, what would we do? Oh, my
1: gosh. Yeah, you know, that fires me up because that's what we're trying to do here every week on the show. And I am just incredibly excited for how we're going to see a change in the world because women are having these conversations and stepping out. And you're right. There there are too many stories, too little time. There's there's plenty of room for everyone to play their, you know, play their part. We only have about a minute left. Erica, I'd love for you to just leave the listeners with something positive, which I know is easy for you to do. And what may be one of your or two of your goals is uh, for your company this coming year?
0: Well, I do have two books coming out, so look for those. Look for okay. epreneur. And one and is your memoir, as, correct? Yeah, one yes. is a business memoir and one is a personal memoir. Okay. So great. They're, they're two. And then one is a book about walking through fear, and hopefully that'll be by the end of the year. But personally, I would say um, if you're like me, you have a lot of feelings. <laughs> Lots of feelings and fears and thoughts about all sorts of things. They're not facts, they're just feelings. Believe in yourself. Just breathe. Look at your feet. Count to 10. This is where you are. This is the only moment you need to be in, not something that's happened and not something that may happen. And just in this moment, give everything you have to each moment and just keep going. Don't give up no matter what.
1: Mm. That's my message. That sounds wonderful to me. It's a great, great message. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled, Erica, and I know that you and I will be talking um, more down the road and just so thrilled that you've come into my life um, on a personal note, and I'm excited for for following you and watching what great things you're going to do in the future. Thank you. I look forward to working with you as well. Thanks, Erica. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women To Watch. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and you can find out all about what we're doing uh, with the program by going to womentowatch.net. And uh, have a great week, everyone.